0: Welcome back to the Young Adult Podcast. This week we have a guest speaker, Sister Jennifer Mast, who is a longtime instructor at Indiana Bible College. She teaches the Gospel of John class at Indiana Bible College, and you will see that she is very knowledgeable about the book of John and uh, biblical languages and the Word of God in general. You're going to enjoy this from Sister Mast. Uh, So she is teaching in John chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, and the lesson is titled, You Must Be Born Again. Uh, I know we announced on the schedule that Brother Kilman would be teaching, but I don't, do you see Brother Kilman here? Me neither. Uh, We had a little schedule mishap. I blame myself, really. I don't know what I did but I blame myself for this. Do you concur, Brother Lopez? He does. So we got the second best thing. Uh, what? Did you want to be second? <laughs> well, Well, all I know is that Sister Mast is a rock star teacher, and she is highly respected at IBC for the teaching and the hard work she puts in. Uh, She teaches the book of John, and we're going to be blessed tonight. I'm looking forward to the word, I know it's going to be good. Let's welcome Sister Mast as she comes.
1: do it. So it's always fun to get an opportunity to uh, speak to this group. It's been a couple of years since I've uh, had a chance to, but I always count it a privilege and always have a lot of fun doing so. Um, Of course, uh, when he asked me today and he said you were in John, I was like, that's perfect. That's so simple. Um, So for some of you, I'm going to be taking you back to school a little bit. Because you've had my class, hopefully we'll give it a little bit of a different spin today. Uh, But I uh, do count it a privilege, and I always have a fun time speaking to y'all. So thank you for the invitation. And um, from what I hear, you're at John 3 verses 1 through 10. Now, I tried to expand it just a little bit because I was afraid I would not have quite enough for a full session. But the truth is, usually it works the other way. If you've had me in an exegetical class, I'm like, we're going to get through a whole chapter and a half today right after we get through five verses because I get hopped up. So we'll try not to get too hopped up today. Um, But this is a great portion of scripture, of course, uh, dealing with Nicodemus, very well uh, quoted, very well preached. Uh, portion of Scripture, so not something that's uncommon, not something that's bizarre. Actually, most of the Gospel of John is is um, fairly well preached, with the exception of maybe chapter seventeen or so, when you get into some of the language that's a little bit more difficult. But I will say about the Gospel of John, it's beautiful because it has a lot of incredible nuggets. Uh, John, as a writer, um, was the last of the gospel writers, and as such he had the opportunity, in my opinion, through the, 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 the gift of the Holy Ghost and through the moving of the Holy Ghost to delve into some areas that perhaps the other gospel writers didn't delve into in the sense that um, he takes on a slightly more theological tone with some of his writing. Um, the synoptic gospels are called the synoptic gospels for a reason, and that's because they all mirror one another to some extent. Many of the stories are retold. Um, with a little bit of a new flavor uh between those those the the first three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is not considered a synoptic because it only has a couple stories that really cross over. So John is dealing with some unique things by the time he's written this gospel because there's uh some new false doctrines and things that have uh come into the early church, which I'm sure you've dealt with a little bit when you when you got into chapter one. But this is of course a story uh that is found nowhere else in scripture. Um we're starting with verse one and two. The Bible says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, what do we know about Nicodemus? Anybody? Do we know much about Nicodemus? We know he's a Pharisee. We just read that. Anything else? <laughs> yes. If you remember that Easter drama, Messiah, he does look exactly like Brother Barkus. It's the, the similarities are really unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. I'm sure if we could get a painting, of that moment in time when he came to Jesus by night, he would have on Brother Barkus's glasses and the whole nine yards, probably Sister Barkus in tow, because Sister Barkus would not allow him to go see Jesus by night without going also, if you know Sister Barkus. Yes. We know that he was there after the cross. Now, Nicodemus is not talked about in any of the Gospels other than in John. And he only really comes up in three passages. John chapter 3, which we're dealing with today. John chapter 7. And then John chapter 19. And you did hit the nail on the head with uh, chapter 19 because we know that he is with uh, Jesus when they're preparing his body for burial. The Bible tells us that he, he brought myrrh and uh, spices and ointments, um, 100 pounds worth to help anoint and prepare Jesus' uh, body for burial. So we don't know a lot about Nicodemus, which is kind of fun in a sense, because it means you can kind of fill in the blanks uh, imaginatively and creatively with kind of who and what he might have been. We do know that he was a Pharisee. Uh, The word Pharisee uh, comes from a Hebrew word, which means separated or set apart, distinguished. Um, It was one of the two rival uh, religious groups at the time, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We know that there are multiple differences between those two groups. Um, We see it come out multiple times in Scripture. For instance, in Acts 23.8, we see that the Sadducees uh, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They also did not believe in uh, angels, or the Bible says in Acts 23.8, spirits, but it would literally be evil spirits. So they didn't believe in evil spirits, they didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. I don't know who told me this. It was probably somebody at CCS as a kid, if I had to guess. But I always remember the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And that the Pharisees did because it would be sad not to believe in the resurrection, <laughs> so it just makes sense to me uh, Sadducees sad it works, so if you ever have a hard time remembering that i 've just given you like that was free that was just free y'all i 'll try to i 'll try to to limit how much I give out for free today but but that one, that one was free so of course, we know that they were usually opposed to Jesus in the new testament uh, they 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 came on the scene during uh Most people think the intertestamental period um, after the Jewish exile. um, Josephus said around the time of Jesus that there was about 6,000 of them in existence. They believed and gave equal attention to both the Torah law or the Old Testament written law as well as the uh, oral law. So uh, the commentaries and things that were written, they gave equal importance to both of those. So that's kind of a unique thing. Sadducees, everything had to have a basis in the Old Testament. Pharisees were a bit more liberal in that sense. They They were the charismatics of the group which is kind of funny because they weren't charismatic at all, um, if you know anything about them. So uh, they, of course, um, were very much into outward holiness, outward signs. They were into, uh, you know, giving the prayers up in the temple in front of everybody. They were into wearing the, the robes just a certain way and everything so that they appeared holy. But in terms of inward piety or inward holiness, they were, they were basically uh, completely without Uh, They didn't see any importance in allowing God to uh, perfect inward holiness within them. So he was a member of the Pharisees, and to be a Pharisee afforded certain privileges within the community Uh, in terms of uh, societal privileges, in terms of uh, uh, position, authority, um, respect, um, amongst others. Uh, So we we know he was a Pharisee. He was also a ruler of the Jews. Most uh, commentators think that this means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin were made up of 70 um, individuals plus the high priest. So you had chief priests, you had Sadducees, you had Pharisees. It was kind of modeled after the uh, Moses and the, the judges or the the elders in the Old Testament. And they basically functioned as the, the Jewish Supreme Court, so to speak. So this is why when we jump into chapter 7, we see um, him kind of speaking up when uh, there's consternation over the words of Jesus, which we'll look at here in just a few minutes. So, uh. We, we have Nicodemus. Again, we don't know very much about him. We know that he came to Jesus by night. We know he was a Pharisee. We knew, know he was a ruler of the Jews. We also know, interestingly enough, that in John 7, which is what I was referring to a moment ago, there's a bit of division after Jesus stands up on that great day of the feast, and he says, um, Ye that are thirsty, come unto me and drink. And then he goes on to say, He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Um, and then he goes on, and uh, the the Bible writer writes, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And we see that just as is always the case when Jesus speaks truth, the truth is polarizing. Words of truth are always polarizing. It's always going to cause either attraction or rejection. You can't stand neutral when it comes to truth. You can't stand there and say, well, I'm just going to stand in this neutral position, and I'm going to be friends. and I'm not going to decide whether I'm going to uh, go and assign go on the side of truth and on the side of God, or whether I'm going to stay over here and and stand against truth. You can't stand neutral. You always have to have a response to truth. And we see that when Jesus walks on the scene in verses like this, that there's immediately polarization within the, the, the crowd, within the multitude. They're saying maybe he's a prophet, maybe he's the Messiah. No, he's demon-possessed. No, he's from Satan. No, he's this. No, he's that. And we see this immense amount of confusion, and we see that in this passage in chapter 7, and don't worry, I'm not going to teach chapter 7, um, I'm steering away from all that good stuff about the Holy Ghost, and we're not we're not going to go there, even though it's so much fun to do so. Um, but we see in the, these verses in chapter seven, there's all this consternation, all this debate. We see that the the elders, um, and the the Jewish uh, elders, most likely the Sanhedrin, came and started to, to to make their assertions as to who and what Jesus was, and, and Nicodemus. St- The Bible actually says that Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night, comes and says, our law provides for someone when they're accused to speak for themselves. And you haven't allowed Jesus to do this. And of course, they uh, condemn Nicodemus and try to make him look like an ignorant fool by saying, oh, art thou from Galilee as well, as though that's the worst insult that could come. Now, we don't really know Nicodemus' story. Um, I like to think that Nicodemus became a convert. I know he at least moved in that direction because the fact that he was there to help anoint Jesus' body and prepare it for burial. Now, does that mean necessarily that he was there in the upper room? Absolutely not. But I like to think if he aligned himself at that point in Jesus' life with him, that hopefully he made it all the way. And if he was there when Jesus spoke on that great day of the feast, and he was willing to, to step up to the plate, bite the bullet, and to stand in in opposition to the Jewish religious leaders and say, hey, at least give the guy a chance, at least give the guy a chance to speak for himself, then I would hope that that might, or perhaps have been a pivotal moment in Nicodemus' experience, and that perhaps he did become a believer or follower. Now, it's interesting to me that John noted his uh, religious affiliation before he noted his name. You know, it's kind of interesting. You know, what's more important, your identity, or your religious affiliation. What's more important, who you identify with? The name that's been called over you? Or your religious affiliation? Because you see, Nicodemus was a Jew. Nicodemus was one who was called out and separated unto God for a specific purpose. According to the Old Testament, the name Yahweh was called over the people of Israel. And so as such, I would think it would be a little bit more important that he were a Jew as opposed to a Pharisee. But we don't see that being coming out first. E- even before John speaks his name, he says he was a Pharisee because to Nicodemus, perhaps, that was the most important thing. Now, secondly, we see that he came to Jesus by night. Now, you know, we could ask and we could muse on exactly why he might have came to Jesus by night. Um, could have been convenient after the workday. had already kicked back and had his supper and drank his sweet tea. And I don't drink uns- sweet tea. I love unsweetened tea. I'm one of those weirdos. But um, I will claim it wholeheartedly. I'm, I'm a nerd as well in a lot of ways, more than just my drinking of unsweetened tea. But, um, but I do love unsweetened tea. So, you know, maybe he had already drank his unsweetened tea, kicked back and had his meal and all that good stuff. But I don't think that that's what happened. I think he went to Jesus by night simply because he wanted to go covertly. You see, there was a lot on the line for Nicodemus. There was a lot that he was putting on the line by by going to Jesus, because simply being seen with Jesus could be enough to be seen as an alignment with Jesus in such a way that he would lose the respect of his peers and lose the respect of society. So he went to Jesus by night because perhaps he was was kind of warring within and trying to decide exactly how to take the words of Jesus because he felt this attraction and he felt this pull, pull. Because Jesus talks about the fact that those that were Yahweh's sheep are going to come to him. And so perhaps Yahweh's... Perhaps Nicodemus still had a little bit of a relationship with Yahweh, and he felt that drawing, and he felt that pull, but he wasn't quite ready to take the plunge. Now, I do find the positioning of this uh, particular story a little interesting because um, without delving back into chapter 2 too much, uh, verses 23 and 24, just at the end of that chapter. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Now, this is a powerful por- portion of scripture, and in, in my eyes, quite uh, convicting, because it says that many believed on his, in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, the word there for believed is a form of pistuo in the Greek, which literally means to have faith in or believe. Now, what's interesting is in the following verse, when it says, But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, it's also a form, an, a uh, past tense form of pistuo. So, it's not just that they believed and he didn't commit himself to them because they weren't quite at that point in faith, but literally, they said they believed in his name because they saw miracles, and he said, I don't believe in you. What an incredible, incredibly convicting concept the fact that we can worship Jesus' name and we can praise Jesus' name because we've seen the miracles and we've seen the chains broken and we've seen people walk away from drugs and alcohol and we've seen mighty healings, and yet. Jesus can still look at us because he knows our heart and say, I don't believe in you because I know that the basis of your faith isn't correct. Now, why do I bring this up? Because the very next passage, important passage that we see here, we find that Nicodemus, Jesus, uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night and we find that Jesus knows exactly where Nicodemus is at, why? Because as we saw in the previous passage, he knows the heart. He doesn't just look at what's on the outside. He doesn't just look at our presentation or our finesse. He knows precisely what's in our heart at each and every moment. Now, Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus, perhaps it's just me, but I can imagine Nicodemus kind of rehearsing all this in his head. See, I was the weird, weird child. I was an only child, and I I often had to process things and think through things before I could uh, uh, verbalize them completely to the extent that oftentimes in the middle of a conversation I couldn't just be extemporaneous. I would have to process it and think through it. And so by the time I decided exactly what I was going to say and how I was going to say it, the conversation would be 10 minutes past. And I'd either have to, to just circle the conversation back around or just shut my mouth and, and grin and bear it. Um, so I, I know what it's like to cr- try to categorize and try to work out exactly how a conversation will go in my head. And if he says this, then I'll say this. And if, it, it, if I do this, then then perhaps he'll do this. And when I approach Jesus, this is how I'm going to approach him. So I can imagine Nicodemus kind of practicing this. Perhaps he was like the guy that I went to high school with who we had a, a restroom off of the, uh, the, in the high school at CCS, we had a restroom that was right off of the, uh, like, Rec area where we'd play Foursquare and stuff in the high school and annoy all the other classes, play ping pong and stuff. And he would leave the one stall bathroom door open and he would stand there in front of the mirror and you'd walk by and you couldn't help but notice and he'd. he'd and we would just laugh about it like, what is this guy doing? Like, does he think he's Fonzie? He's way in the wrong era. I mean, he's way in the wrong era. We're talking about like 2000. This is not 1960. And he thinks he's really cool doing this. So I can imagine Nicodemus maybe, maybe not uh, doing his best Fonzie impression, but standing in front of the mirror and maybe practicing this out a little bit because he approached Jesus with words of respect. What did he say? He said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Now he didn't just want Jesus to be impressed by the fact that he was able to approach him with respect, but he also wanted Jesus to see maybe that he was perhaps a little bit of an intellectual. It was logical. You know, I believe that you're a, a teacher come from God, but it's not just because I believe that in my heart because that would, that would not be the Pharisee way of looking at it. It's because I've seen the miracles that you do, and nobody can do the miracles that you do unless they be of God. So I have a logical reason for why I believe you came from God. And you know what is so fascinating? It's Jesus time and again within the gospel of John and within the other gospels for that matter, completely ignores the niceties. He completely ignores the mechanics of a normal conversation. You would think it's, oh, well, you know, I appreciate your faith, or, oh, you know, just something. Man, give the guy a bone, for goodness sake. Instead, he looks at him, and he says what? He says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Talk about driving it right to the point, Jesus and this is precisely what I'm talking about when I, when I brought up verses 23 and 24 of chapter 2. You see, Nicodemus was not able to impress Jesus with his intellect. He wasn't able to impress Jesus with his lofty words of worship and adoration. It took something a little bit more to impress Jesus, and that took a, was a heart that was willing to surrender, and Nicodemus wasn't at that point yet. But the beautiful thing about God is he always knows exactly where your heart is at, and he knew exactly where Nicodemus's heart was in this situation— what did it say in verse 24? Because he knew all men. He knew Nicodemus. Before he ever uh, went and rehearsed his nicely organized thoughts, before Jesus, Jesus knew the, co- the direction the conversation needed to go, completely caught Nicodemus off, off foot. And if you are one of those logical minds, if you have somebody that's extremely extemporaneous, sometimes you just don't know what to do. Sometimes it's just grin and nod because it's, you're like, I can't follow this or, you know, I assumed that it would happen this way. And it's going to take me 10 minutes to figure out why it didn't happen that way. And I feel like perhaps Nicodemus was kind of caught in that, that crossfire, so to speak. So, uh, verse 3 Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the words verily, verily in the Greek um, are basically amen, amen. So, amen, amen. Um, so, what is, exactly does that mean? It means truly, truly, or of a truth. Um, if we were to put it into an idiomatic type of statement, it would be something along the lines of, hey, listen up, this is really important. And that's really idiomatic. We, we're borderline, folks, I'm not translating there. Please be careful. That's borderline ghetto Bible. I recognize that. That's, that's cotton patch Bible. Anybody ever seen the cotton patch Bible? Don't pick up the ghetto Bible. The ghetto Bible is unreadable. It's full of profanity. But the cotton patch Bible is kind of funny. <laughs> In a very sad sort of way because it all puts it in Southern speech. You feel like you're reading Mark Twain instead of the gospels. So it's like, hey y'all, come over to the, the, the yon fishing hole. I mean, seriously, it's, it's hysterical folks. So that was my cotton patch version of that, no. That was just horrible. I don't even know where, where I was going with that. But it would literally be something like, truly, truly, or ever truth, or, or if we were to, to, to think about the intention of what it would be, it would be something along the lines of, listen, this is important. Okay? So, anytime you see verily, verily in your Bible, it's not a bad idea to like stop, pause, and then read carefully because perhaps it's something of importance that Jesus is about to say. Now, of course, what is the very next word except? Ain may in the Greek except or unless a man be born again of the water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, a couple things to note here. One, this is very, very blunt. I mean you don't get any more blunt than this. Except a man, no other way, no ands ifs, or buts about it. The only way that you can see the kingdom of God, and just so you know, the king to see the kingdom of God in to a Jew would mean the same thing that it would mean to you and I. Now they didn't see pearly gates because and streets of gold because that's New Testament, but they did consider seeing the kingdom of God to be participation in eternal life or participation in resurrected life, we could say. So, this meant the same thing to to, to uh, uh, Nicodemus that it meant to you, that it would mean to you and I. Furthermore, except a man. Now, he doesn't say Jew here, which is kind of fascinating, um, and he doesn't say a Gentile. So, he's not talking about a Gentile becoming a Jewish proselyte and converting to Judaism, and he's also not suggesting that only a Jew can be born again, but he is using a term here that is very inclusive to suggest that his gospel, that what's about to take place, just a few chapters hence on the cross of Calvary is going to be inclusive. It's going to be for all of humanity. And it's, it's, it's the, 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 the playing field is going to be leveled, so to speak. Okay, so both you and Gentile are going to have a way and a path to the kingdom of God and a way to see the kingdom of God. Now, this, this word born again um, has a double meaning in terms of the, 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 the Greek um, terminology there. It means born anew. And born from above. Now we see both of these definitions played out time and again within the New Testament. To be born again means to be born anew. It means, as we see in Romans chapter 6, that when we go down into the waters of baptism, we we identify with Christ, not just in allegiance. It's not just I, I um I'm going down the waters of baptism because I, I'm saying today that I'm going to become a Christian, but it means that we identify with Him because when we go down in the waters of Baptism, we're expected to rise in newness of life, and we're, we're expected to allow the Spirit to begin to guide our lives, and we're expected to have different conduct and to have a change in life and a change in demeanor. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, of course, uh, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The, it, so it's not just about um, being born again, going down in the waters of baptism. And it's just a nice little gesture. It's about actually a change of conduct and a change of life. And so when we're born anew, the old man passes away and we become a new creature in Christ Jesus. That means we're not going to walk according to the former conduct. That means we're no longer going to walk like a sinner walks. We're no longer going to talk like a sinner talks. We're no longer going to find entertainment in the same ways that a sinner finds entertainment. Instead, we're going to allow ourselves to be transformed. And let me tell you something, friends. The closer you get to God and the more you allow yourself to be transformed by him and the more you yield yourself to him in prayer and in fasting, the more you're going to, to hunger for those things that are like him. The more you're gonna turn away from those things that aren't like him, and the more you're gonna to desire to draw nearer to him in prayer and in fasting, and to desire to draw nearer to his presence, and the more you're going to to cry out from the depths of your soul, from the depths of your heart. I want to know you completely, fully. Everything that I am, I want it to be consumed and to be changed and transformed by who you are. Because folks, you know, this is we oftentimes think of this as as just a passage for new converts, but the reality is we have to live as a born-again Christian. This world deserves born-again Christians. This world doesn't deserve some half-hearted, apostolic that knows the truth and refuses to live according to the truth and to be an example and to be a shining in darkness. The truth of the matter is we're called and set apart so we can show forth the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're set apart for a reason. So this concept of being born again, it is to be born anew. It gives us a new release on life. It demands that we no longer follow sin. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, man, I didn't feel like I wasn't going to switch over here, but now I'm going to switch over here for just a second. Uh, the Bible says in Romans 6, 13, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as though they're those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Folks, if you have been set apart, if you've been filled with his spirit, baptized in his name, Why would you want to yield your members unto sin and unrighteousness when you could live a resurrected life in him? When you know that there is glory that lays beyond Jordan's shore. When you know that there's heaven on the other side. When you know that in order to see eternal life, in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to walk a certain way and you have to live a life that's transformed. Why would you yield your members to unrighteousness? Why wouldn't you want to yield yourselves to God? You know, the the apostles turned the world upside down because they yielded themselves to something higher than what they were able to attain to. They yielded themselves and allowed themselves to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. If we want to transform our world and turn our world upside down, that's what you and I need to do. We have to, to choose daily not to yield ourselves to sin and to unrighteousness. And sometimes it's not even the horrible sins of this world, but it's just the things, the ways that so easily beset us. The things that keep us bondage and the things that keep us from becoming what he desires to be us to be. So born anew. Born again means to born anew, and it also means born from above. Now this is buried out, of course, again and again throughout Scripture. Jesus himself says, If I be lifted up from the cross, I will draw all men unto me. So we know... That this concept of, of being born again comes from something beyond what we're able to attain to of ourselves. Uh, John 1, 12 and 13 puts it this way. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sins of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Uh, Romans 8 talks about the fact that, that it's his spirit working within us that is the proof that we are adopted as children of God. So this, the fact of the matter is, when we are born again, we're born anew. So the old man's passed away. All things are become new in Christ Jesus. But also, our birth is not of an earthly origin. It's of a heavenly origin. Something we can't attain to of ourselves. So how do we become a child of God? We become a child of God through faith. I know you guys just went through the book of Romans, so I'm not going to take you back there. But the fact of the matter is, Abraham wasn't saved through circumcision. He wasn't saved through the works of the flesh. How was he saved? Through faith. In faith let's just pause there for a second and say the object of his faith had to be correct he couldn't have just had faith in an idol or just had faith in a god that that was good enough for for adam and eve but perhaps wasn't good enough for him he had to have faith in a god who was able to meet him where he was so how are we able to uh, to become born again through faith in christ jesus through faith that that We can't attain to salvation of ourselves. We cannot become holy of ourselves. No amount of good works will prove our worth to God. I remember as a little kid trying to get the Holy Ghost, man, I just wanted to worship enough to get the Holy Ghost. Man, if I could just say hallelujah good enough, I would finally get the Holy Ghost. My goodness. I remember trying and trying and fighting and fighting and fighting. And actually the first time I spoke in tongues, I didn't even realize I spoke in tongues. And God had to beat me up a little bit. I don't have time for the story, but God had to beat me up a little bit for me to figure out that I had spoken in tongues and um took some money intervening and me praying because pastor always said don't let anybody tell you you got the holy ghost so i remember going over to the little chapel and i prayed and prayed and prayed and i finally felt like god just told me you know whatever whatever experience you had thank me for what you felt and so that's what i did in spoken tongues from the beginning of the service to the end but in my 12 13 year old heart i was trying my best to praise just good enough but folks we can't praise good enough for god at the end of the day the only way that we can achieve or or, uh, the only way that we can attain salvation is by laying it all down and saying, I'm not good enough. Laying it all down and saying, I can't do this by myself. I need the help of someone who is above me. I need the help of a God who is able. And so his spirit comes and dwells within us, and his spirit is the very proof, Romans 8 tells us, of the fact that we are the children of God. So the new birth experience isn't the result of excellent living, a holy walk. It's not because we just had this great amount of exalted praise, but we're born again when we recognize that our efforts to become righteousness or to save ourselves are utterly futile, and we put our faith in the Creator, as I said a moment ago. 3-4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Um, Nicodemus, I believe, knows Jesus is referring to the experiences of a Jewish proselyte or a Jewish convert. Everybody familiar with the term proselyte? A Gentile? Who takes upon them the yoke of the law and becomes a Jew uh, by conversion? So he, he recognized that he wasn't talking about a proselyte here. Uh, few, if any, would argue that, he's, that, that Nicodemus was so um, so confused by Jesus' words that he was literally suggesting that someone had to re-enter their mother's womb. So what is he doing? He's, he's applying his mind to the puzzle. And he's, he's, he's trying to present a question in a way that would allow Jesus to open up further discussion and further explain to him what he's talking about. You see, what Jesus is saying doesn't currently fit Nicodemus' mode of interpretation. So he's a little baffled. He's a little confused. It's, it's off the charts. It's outside the norm. It's off the map, so to speak. And he doesn't fully understand what Jesus is trying to say. So he's saying, I don't get it. Just help me readjust my lens and let me understand what you're talking about. Jesus, verse 5. Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, we see Jesus uses the words verily, verily. I know I sometimes reuse words frequently in conversation. Sometimes it's just, um, because I'm thinking. (laughs) You know, real intellectual here, right? Maybe tomorrow I'll think of a really intellectual word I can reuse throughout the day. But but oftentimes it's just, um, uh, because that's just about as far as it gets. But... Uh, We see Jesus reusing the words verily, verily here. And the reason why he's doing this is, again, he's speaking of something of utmost importance. So he's getting ready to expand upon what he said previously. Previously, he just said, except the man be born again. He didn't give any definition to that. He didn't give any explanation to exactly what that meant, just if a man be born again, except a man be born again. Now he says, except a man be born again of the water and the spirit. Now I do think it's interesting, and I'm not going to dwell here because I don't know that it's a huge theological point, but he moves on from saying, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, to except a man be born again of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So I kind of question whether he's, he's, he's taken Nicodemus back to um, the Old Testament concept. Uh, of Moses not entering the Promised Land, so it's not just that you're not going to see it; you're not going to be able to enter it. It's it's completely outside the realm. You can't even you can't even ascertain as to what it is if you don't follow my path that I've designed and and defined for you. So he's he's expanding on his previous statement. He's defining it a little bit further now. Um, grant me just a moment to pause here. Um, some argue that Jesus is speaking of two separate birth experiences here. So except a man be born of the water, meaning natural birth, and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now there's several issues with this. First of all, Nicodemus would not be standing in front of Jesus unless he had already been born. So that would have been an extremely redundant, dumb statement. And Jesus is not dumb in the least. Obviously, he's omniscient. So for, for him to tell Nicodemus, except you're born of your mother, and then, born of the Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God is would is just insane in my eyes. It's a it's a an, an attempt to avoid what the scripture is actually saying. So, uh, secondly, the term of water is not a common expression to describe natural descent. Uh, Second, or thirdly, uh, John's baptism is obviously a, cent- plays a central role within the gospel of John, as well as the other three gospel narratives. So we have uh, the, the John's baptism uh, leading up to the baptism that would be uh, for the remission of sins that we find in the New Testament. We even see towards the end of John's ministry, John the Baptist ministry, that Jesus is sending the disciples out to baptize. So, we know that baptism is not something foreign, okay? We know baptism is not something foreign to the Jewish mindset or the, the Jewish experience. Uh, lastly, the Greek structure does not allow for this type of interpretation. So, let me pause for just a second there. If I had a PowerPoint, it would make it so much easier. I technically could have brought a PowerPoint, but you probably couldn't have seen it really well up here, and you probably don't want to see a bunch of Greek on a Wednesday night anyway, um, But in the Greek construction, the definite article, the, is missing, um, which indicates that these two terms are extremely closely related. Now, what two terms are we saying are closely related? Water and spirit. So we don't have, the the Bible in the original Greek does not say uh, born again of the water and of the spirit. If we said of the water and of the spirit, it would suggest that we had two separate entities, okay? Now, I know this doesn't necessarily apply to English, but this is the way that Greek works. Secondly, um, there's only one preposition. Now, in English, we just throw prepositions around willy-nilly. Um, we just throw words around willy-nilly. Um, that's why uh, the English language is ever-changing and uh, why there's uh, new words added to the dictionary every year, which is kind of fun. Sometimes it's fun to look it up, and sometimes it's it's horribly tragic that we've reached this level in society, and you, you wonder if it can get worse, and then you read the next sentence the list the next year and you realize you can't say anything any of them publicly and you realize yeah we ju- did just get worse but anyway um we we use prepositions however we want to use them uh, but greek typically if you had two words that were closely aligned in meaning or interpretation you would have just one definite article or no definite article and you would have just one preposition to guide it so again we don't st- have born again of water and of spirit in the greek okay And in in the Greek, it just says of water and spirit. Now, why is that important? That's important simply because of this. We're not talking about two separate births, folks. We're not talking about being born of natural descent from your mother and then being born of the spirit. We're also not talking about being born of the water and then hopefully it's nice if you get filled with the Holy Ghost. We're talking about the fact that you are not born again unless you're born of both the water and the spirit. It is one entity, one thing, okay? We Okay. So this is extremely important in terms of the way it's developed in the Greek because of the fact that there is no way around... understanding the fact that we are not born again unless we repent, we're baptized in his name and we're filled with his spirit. Again, baptism is not just me standing up and saying I want to be a Christian. It's me saying I'm going to put the old man to death and I'm going to believe that God is able to redeem me. I'm going to believe that God is able to wash my sins away and when I rise up out of this water, if I'm not filled with his spirit yet, I'm going to start praying because I know that 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 is the promise that is unto me and to my children and to all those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God should come should call. Now, the thing I find so incredible about Jesus's teachings in the Gospels Gospels, is that we find that everything that Jesus teaches leads up to that day of Pentecost, leads up to the writings and the epistles of Paul that talk about the Spirit, that talk about baptism, that talk about our Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and saying, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And you know what's even more beautiful is the fact that Jesus is able to sit down with Nicodemus before there's a cross at Calvary, before there's a death, burial, and resurrection, and he's able to start to explain the salvation experience. Why? Because everything that God did in the history of Israel was to lead up to this point. You see, God didn't just intervene because things got so bad. He didn't just intervene because this was plan B. This was the plan from the dawn of time. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan from the Garden of Eden. He looked out and he recognized that that those he created, those he loved, were going to turn his back on them. And he said, you know what? They may turn their back on me, but I'm not going to turn my back on them. Or when I do, it's going to be my blood stripes that are going to heal them. Okay? So this is a powerful thing if you've never... Uh, off the subject, of another freebie for you. Um, on the book trip one time, uh, as a student, pastor put in my hands uh, and told me to buy, let me just clarify, I don't want him think you all thinking he's going to buy each of you a $30 book. He put in my hands and told me to buy. He did not hand me the $30 to buy. You can thank me later, pastor. Um, the book uh, by Graham Scroggie, The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. Great book if you never read it. It's about this thick. But it is not rough to get through because it's, um, it's not super theologically intense. It's not got Greek and Hebrew and all that good stuff in it. And yes, I did say good stuff. It is good stuff. It's fun stuff. But um, it's very, very fascinating because it takes you through God's, the way that God unfolded the, the, the plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. So, kind of takes you through all of the ins and outs, and it's it's beautiful to see the providence of God and to to recognize that at a juncture like this, before their death, burial, resurrection, God just didn't just have the foresight, but He was able to look at, at Nicodemus and at the end of this 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 chapters that we're going to be the this this passage that we're going through tonight, He's able to look at him and say, Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? Well, what? Why would he have precedence for understanding this? Because it's based on things in the Old Testament. And we don't have time to fully explore that, but uh, let, me, let me continue on. Or we're not going to get through this. Shocking, right? <laughs> 6 and 7, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel or not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So again, ca- the contrast here is between natural descent versus spiritual. You are not going to get at this Nicodemus from just being a child of Abraham. It does not matter if you're fourth generation apostolic. It does not matter what your lineage is. It does not matter where you came from. What matters is what happens today. What matters is where you are spiritually, because this is not a birth that comes, up, comes about naturally. Carnality cannot give birth to the spiritual. You cannot bear the fruit of the spirit if your spirit is carnal, okay? Abraham's son or not, it doesn't matter. Apostolic or not, it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, all that matters is whether you're willing to yield, whether you're willing to say, I'm going to yield myself to those things that are spiritual, because I recognize that the only way I'm going to yield spiritual fruit and the only way I'm going to be able to, to find salvation in Christ is if I yield my spirit to him, because I can't do, I can't get at it naturally. I can't attain to holiness right? Uh, naturally. I can't be good enough to, to turn God's eye in my direction. I can't be good enough for everyone to say, man, she's really great. She's really holy because at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. All that matters is that I'm approved by God. What you all think does not matter. What matters is when I get in a quiet place of prayer with God, whether or not I'm willing to allow God to chastise me. Whether or not I'm willing to allow God to discipline me and redirect my life when I start to get off course. Because you may not see that I'm off course. But perhaps God sees sees that I am at times. Maybe God sees, you know, God sees all of us off course at at different times. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you're like, man, I'm just chugging along. Everything is just splendid. Me and God, you know, we're we're best buds. Um, Totally on the same wavelength here. You know, he he just barely speaks on us soft quiet voice and I hear and turn in his direction and it's this you know I hear a violin start playing and then you, you know there's a crescendo as I go skipping across the field into the arms of no but you get the idea you sometimes get this spiritual thinking that you you've just got everything going just right and has anybody ever been in that moment where God just like slapped you upside the face and said okay you may not be sinning right now But the reality is your heart is not where it needs to be. Your heart is pulled away from me a little bit. Or or perhaps some things have caught your attention that shouldn't have caught your attention. Or perhaps you're not quite prioritizing things like you need to prioritize. Maybe you're not sinning, but you haven't read your Bible in like a month and a half. You haven't prayed in like six months. So how do you think we're best buds? (laughs) You know, okay, maybe not that serious. But you get the idea. The reality, where did I even, where, where was I going with that? The reality is, folks, that we cannot produce spirituality from carnality. We have to be willing to yield ourselves to him. That's that's where Nicodemus was. He was at a point of decision where he had to decide whether or not to yield or whether to continue fighting to attain to righteousness of himself continue wearing the robes continue offering up the offerings continue praying in the public places of worship as loud as he could and as prominently as he could so that everybody thought he was spiritual or did he truly want to be touched by the holy one See, what Jesus is teaching here aligns with the full of the Old and New Testament. We talked about Abraham f- a few minutes ago, so we're not gonna go there again. But the fact of the matter is you cannot have true faith functioning in your life unless it finds its 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 realization in obedience. This is part of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here. You can't, through just your natural descent, through just saying, Well, I'm a child of Abraham, suggest. Or, or bring yourself to a point that is going to allow for this concept of being born again. It's going to take you yielding yourself. It's going to take a change in what you're doing. It's going to take obedience. You cannot have faith without obedience. And folks, obedience requires that we yield ourselves to the salvation process. Not just the first time we approach the altar. Folks, repentance isn't just for the sinner. You know, sometimes we get this concept that once I've repented, I only have to repent if I do something really, really bad. You know, if I completely backside, then I'll repent. But the reality is we all deal with sins and things that beset us. We all deal with getting angry at times when we shouldn't get angry. We have to repent daily. This salvation thing is not a one-time experience. It's continually yielding ourselves and being willing to crucify the flesh so that we can walk in newness of life and so that the spirit can continue to produce holiness within us because we cannot produce holiness within ourselves or within our flesh um and at the end of the day only god can 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 justify us and call us holy i don't care if you call yourself holy and you shouldn't care if i call you holy if i say man they're really a great apostolic that shouldn't really matter because at the end of the day that doesn't matter to God. What I think of you doesn't matter to God. What you think of one another doesn't matter to God. What matters is what he sees in your heart. So, and uh, I feel like going 500 different directions, but such is life. I'm going to I'm gonna hurry here, or I'm never going to be invited back, one or the other. <laughs> um, one quick side note there. Even the word saint in the Greek is hagios, which means holy. You can't even call yourself a saint unless you're holy, and you're only holy if God pronounces you holy. Titus 3, 5 puts it this way, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, his mercy, his mercy, he has saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, I do need to pause here for just a second, and then 9 and 10 are pretty much a done deal for us. Um... The word here, the wind bloweth. Uh, The word wind is pneuma, which means spirit. It can mean wind, it can mean breath. And then we have it translated as spirit later on in the verse. What's interesting is this corresponds perfectly with the Hebrew. There are two specific words in the Hebrew. Ruach and Neshama. in the uh, Hebrew, that both correspond the same way. They can be translated as breath, wonder, spirit. Now, this is a powerful concept, so watch it for just a second here. If you take it back to the book of Genesis, you have Jesus, well, Jesus, he was the creator. All things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we'll just go the quizzing route with it. But you have God in the Old Testament as the creator, breathing into Adam the breath of life, right? And when he breathed into Adam the breath of life, we oftentimes think of him just bringing a corpse to life, right? bringing something that he shaped, breathing life into it, and now he's, he's walking and talking and chilling with all the animals. But the reality is this this denotes more than just him breathing into Adam the breath of life because he breathed into Adam and he gave him wisdom. He gave him a conscience. He gave him a soul and an understanding. So this is why when we flip over to Romans chapter 1, it says that we're without excuse because even the invisible things of creation, creation are revealed by that which is created. Those things that are visible testify to the reality that there is a God. This is what we see throughout the Psalms. The waves in the ocean, the the majesty of the mountains, the the storm that comes in the, the dead of night, and the lightning that splits the sky all testifies to who and what God is. So... This concept of God breathing into Adam the breath of life means that he not only gave him physical life, but he also gave him spiritual life. Now, when we flip over into the New Testament, we have this concept of the spirit being called a wind or breath. Um, then it sounds all uh, like some of the song music, but we won't go down that road. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Um <laughs> But but the word can be translated as wind, it can be translated as breath, it can be translated as spirit, and there is a reason for that. Because when God fills us with his spirit, he is taking that which is dead and he's bringing it to life. Okay, he's, he's doing the same thing he did with Adam, but instead of it just being physical being physical and a conscience and wisdom and understanding, he's giving us spiritual life. He's giving us the ability to overcome. Furthermore, the Bible says that the blind the wind, or the blend, Wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. Now, what's interesting is, is I can watch a blade of grass bend in the wind. I can watch a tree bend against the wind. I can, I, can, I can go out and I can stick my finger up in there and I can sometimes tell which way the wind's going. But folks, you can't hear a wind and tell which way it's coming from. You can't stand there. There's such a thing as wind madness that a wind is whipping so, so much that it completely disorients you and you can't even figure out what direction you're trying to go because the wind is so disorienting. See, there's something about the spirit that defies convention. There's something about the spirit that defies our ability or, d- or our, our, our best efforts to try to, to control it. Now, this is important. What does that mean? It means the spirit cannot and should not be manipulated at any point. You see, we can harness the power of the wind by using a windmill. Okay, And you can, you can allow the, the, the wind to touch that windmill and, and turn it to help power something, but you cannot tell the wind when it's blowing the opposite direction. No wind change directions because that's not how the wind works. You see, we, we deny the anointing of God and deny the power of God when we try to control the wind. When we try to tell God when he can move, where he can move, how he can move, or when we try to say he can just move on certain individuals and only certain people are worthy of his touch or worthy of his anointing or worthy of his spirit dwelling within them. The fact of the matter is the wind bloweth where it listeth. And who designs or desires where the wind is going to move? God. And that's a powerful concept, folks. I don't want to try to control the wind, because I'm not omniscient. I don't know what direction it needs to go. I don't know what direction a service needs to go. I don't know whose heart needs to be touched, but you know what, I know a God who does. So I'm gonna stand there and I'm gonna say, God, I want you to be the windmill. Wherever you need me to flow, wherever you need me to go, whatever you need me to do, if this, if, if this service needs to go a completely different direction, don't worry, I'm not gonna go a different direction. We're almost done. Um, but I wanna go in another direction, if that's what your, your heart and your mind desires. To take place. Furthermore, of course, um, we know that what happens in the book of Acts, what does the Bible say in Acts chapter 2? It says that when the Spirit comes in, in the day of Pentecost, it says they're all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came not a presence, not an a, uh, appearance of wind, but the sound of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Now, folks, This passage is important to new converts, but this is important to us because you know what? I don't want to have church that doesn't allow for a mining rushing wind to fill the house. I don't want to have church where I'm closing the door against the Spirit because I only want it to flow in ways that that will look appealing to the doctors and the lawyers. I don't want to have church in a way that disables the power of God. My Lord, I don't care what it looks like on the outside. I want a church that allows the anointing and the power of God to flow and to move in the way that he desires. I want to have church in such a way that the power is flowing and the spirit is flowing in such a way that people driving by on, on Fletcher Avenue feel the presence of God begin to draw them in because it's flowing out of the church. And I don't care if they walk in the door and say there are a bunch of holy rollers rolling on the ground. Maybe that's what they need to see that day to find themselves an altar. You know, it's not about production. It's not about manipulation of the spirit. But if we could learn to live in the power of salvation in the power of being born again, being born anew, being born from above, being born in, as a child of God, my Lord, we're children of God. You know, it doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter who your father and mother were, but you're a son and a daughter of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You have the power and authority, the same power and authority that the disciples had in the book of Acts. If we could yield ourselves to that, what powerful, powerful moves of the Spirit could we have and what incredible presence we could have in each and every one of our services. Verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus answered and said unto them, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master or a teacher? In the Greek, a rabbi of Israel, and knowest not these things? Again, I talked about the unfolding drama of redemption earlier. Jesus' teaching builds on the Old Testament. One of the biggest problems with modern day Christianity is it's a New Testament Christianity, and yes, we are a New Testament church, but we are built on the apostles and prophets. So everything that we interpret of Scripture should be interpreted through the viewpoint of the Old Testament. If we Again, why is this an issue? Because there is no way, I don't see a way to uh, consistently, hermeneutically go through the New Testament and find a trinity. Now, I can find ways that you can pick and choose specific verses, but if you go to the Old Testament, there is absolutely no hint at anything. There's no confusion. There's not even a verse that you can pick and choose at to try to make a trinity out of it. Part of the problem with, New Test- with, with much of Christianity is it's a New Testament Christianity that does not find its point of reference in the foundation of the Old Testament. And this is exactly what Jesus did time and again in his ministry. Everything that he taught, everything that he p- preached, every miracle that he did had a reference point in the Old Testament. Um, so what are some reference points here? Of course, we could look at ritual quen- cleansings. And again, I'm not going to go to all these places. And um, we could look at uh, Naaman being cleansed from his leprosy, which is a type of sin, by dipping in the Jordan River, a, t- a, a type of or a, a precursor to baptism. We could look at ritual cleansings. We could look at uh, Noah and his family being saved uh, through the water of the flood. We could look at a lot of different things. So he's looking at uh, Nicodemus, and he's saying, he should understand these things because everything that I've done has led to this point when I'm sitting here with you and can begin to explain the plan of salvation. And I am finished. I went longer than I should have, but we are finished.